so uh, it's long been many people's opinion that if you're going to watch an award show, you should probably watch the Tonys if you're only going to watch one because the people involved in the Tonys are implicitly comfortable with performing live, whereas the people on the Emmys and the Oscars are not necessarily so. And so last night was the Tonys, um, a, a different hosting configuration, a few surprises. Frank Rizzo is joining us. He's the go-to guy for theater in Connecticut, theater writer for the Hartford Current and for Variety. Uh, Frank, uh, welcome to the show. I already know some of your opinions by watching your Twitter feed from last night. Well, uh, the show is always interesting, and uh, it had a lot of surprises in terms of the awards. Uh, it was the most um, – it had the biggest up- upset, actually, in terms of the big award of the night, the best musical, since I think this goes back to uh, Wicked, uh, when Wicked and um, Avenue Q were going head-to-head in this little show, this tiny little show with, with puppets called Avenue Q knocked the, uh, um, the giant off its perch. Now, uh, American in Paris wasn't quite right. uh, of wicked proportions, but it's it's a big hit, and it's going to do very well, and it's a terrific show, by the way. And actually, uh, the Bushnell has some dough in, in it in terms of its uh, investment. But uh, the big winner of the night was Fun Home, this little, little show that uh, people just love. And um, actually, I think it had the best musical segment of the night with this uh, wonderful little girl in it. Yeah, this is a wonderful little girl. She's uh, 11 years old. I think her name is Sydney Lucas. Yes. Uh, and and so, yeah, and so she did this uh, song called Ring of Keys. Although I have to say, I thought she was terrific. I thought her delivery mm-hmm. uh, uh, of that song was terrific. It wasn't really a song that made me say... I've got to get tickets to this show right now. No, but uh, it wasn't the hard sell, uh, but it was an intimate sell. And, and I think uh, the audience watching it really got to know the sense of what the show is all about. And it just focused and settled on one performer giving this wonderful, tender song that pretty much reflected what the show is about, as opposed to this horrible mishmash of, did anyone know in America know what the hell is going on with The Visit or on the 20th century? Uh, you know, suddenly there were these, you know, eunuchs in in whiteface with Cheetah Rivera and... Uh, uh, even though Cheetah was, was lovely in, in the moment, um, you know the the uh, the the scene itself was was not very good, and I wouldn't be surprised if uh, they post their closing notice today. Yeah, uh, you're bringing up all kinds of things that I want to talk about as we go along, and but I want to come back to Fun Home for a second. But sure. before we do that, we we do have to say that whatever we thought of that number, and I agree, it was very uninspiring. The number from the visit. You know, I mean, just for those of us who are getting on in years, Cheetah Rivera is 82 years old mm-hmm. and delivering a full-fledged number in which Absolutely. she seemed completely legitimate. I mean, I, I, she is, she's the hope I'm clinging to right now for myself, <laughs> Frank. Well, she's a hope we're all clinging to because she, uh, she is, um, you know, and actually, theater people in general uh, have a happy, long life on stage. If you think of James O. Jones, if you think of Hal Holbrook, if you think of Angela Lansbury, they're all in their 80s or 90s and giving eight performances a week. God bless them. And very good performances at that. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad Cheetah was nominated, but I'm, I'm glad uh, Kelly won. Yeah. Kelly O'Hara for King and I. Yeah, it's sort of the ages of women now as you, you go from playing Desiree in A Little Night Music to playing the Hermione. Gingold role, you know, and, and yeah. the, 
because you get to sit down. Uh, so, but let's come back to Fun Home because what we haven't really said is what this musical is. This is first of all, it's you know there there are few enough new musicals, completely brand new musicals mm-hmm. that don't repurpose other material on Broadway anyway. Uh, there are even fewer new musicals. This is something that was talked about yesterday. You and I were at Long Wharf that involve you know pretty much all women creative teams. Absolutely. It's the first time that uh, uh, co-creators of the music as well as uh, the the book uh, um, won for uh, won Tony's for those awards. Uh, it's uh, you know it was a good night for women in general. The um, the director for the best play of the year, uh, the Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, w- was a woman. So uh, you know women women did very very well uh, um, you know, last night. Yeah, although it's uh, it's especially good to be a, a, a British woman. Because, a British uh, woman certainly helps. Yeah. But none of the fun home people were British, and it was a completely homegrown and all American uh, show, so to speak. True. Uh, the the uh, director, uh, the best director of a play for Curious Dog is uh, Marianne Elliott, is British, and of course Dame Helen Mirren had a great night. Well, let's let's talk about fun home. This is the story. It's essentially a story based on the story of Alison Bechdel, her, uh, based on her graphic novel. Right, and it is it's a it's a uh, a story of a closeted uh, dad and also the kind of coming of age and coming of awareness uh, of a young woman uh, as a lesbian. And mm-hmm. and as such, maybe a kind of unlikely fodder for a musical. I mean, there's even more grim stuff in there that I, we, maybe we don't want to do any more spoilers. But um, it's, you know, this isn't, uh, you know, uh, no, I, and I think a music man. Tony voters were responding to that and how well it was presented. Actually, if anything, it sort of reminded me of William Finn's um, uh, falsettos musicals uh, in dealing with subject matter and um, and and tone. That it's very smart, very funny, very musical, but at the same time, you know, talk, uh, talking about very personal uh, and not so so much feel good uh, uh, subject matter. Um, and as I say, I, I do think, boy, uh, for Sidney Lucas, uh, and, and it's sort of, you know, this the way they shoot it, too, she really has to kind of hold a close-up. This young woman is, is 10 or 11. I think she's 11, yeah. She held the stage of Radio City Music Hall, uh, this little 11-year-old girl, and, you know, was completely poised, but assured without being that, you know, icky, you know, um, a child precociousness that we all kind of cringe at. You know, um, uh, so much to talk about. You were alluding to the fact that uh, some shows wait to see if they could possibly win uh, enough Tonys to sort of restart the life support mechanism. Um, so this is uh, one of the things you as a theater writer will now watch over the next few days. You mentioned The Visit as a show that might not be able to stay open now. Right. Uh, are there any other? I mean, for example, you know, Disgraced has been running a really long time. I don't know. Disgraced closed. Oh, it has closed. Okay. Right. It had a you know it had a respectable run. It's going to be done everywhere, including Long Wharf Theater. They're right. going to open their season with Disgraced. Uh, so it's going to have a, a nice life in the theater. Uh, but in terms of, of musicals, uh, the, the the big uh, loser here was was the visit. But no one actually thought it was going to get uh, the best musical. But there were hopes that uh, Cheetah would. And actually, my guess is that the producers were hoping that Cheetah would not get it because then they'd be obligated to keep the show open because Cheetah won the award. Now they can reasonably close it with um, with their you know with full honors. 
Right. This is something that that sort of came to light. I, I think some maybe some of the writing that you you and other people did after Curious, uh, not Curious Star, after A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder won the Tony last year, the Hartford stage generated one, which is it really is great if you win the Tony. Absolutely. But, but it, it, it it's not great like the next day, right? You've got to sort of build no, that box is, office no, up. It, yeah. it is uh, absolutely. It's today's it, box office for Fun Home is going to go through the roof. <laughs> it's uh, it's going to propel Fun Home, uh, and it's already going to boost its. Um, uh, tour that they were going that's going to begin in 2016. The big question is, will the Bushnell uh, pick it up, or will it uh, ignore yet another Tony Award-winning musical? It passed on Gentleman's Guide for their Broadway season under the excuse that oh, Hartford Stage has already done it. Uh, so. Um, if um, if they don't do Fun Home, then I'd, I'd question the Bushnose uh, commitment to uh, showing us the best of Broadway. Ooh, you, the gauntlet has been thrown down, David. <laughs> <laughs> so why not? Yeah, the, Frank Rizzo has challenged you now. So there, you know, there's a, a, a lot of different conversations that are going on, kind of subtly, or maybe even not so subtly, uh, at uh, at the Tonys, and particularly this year, I think one of the not very subtle undercurrents was this kind of sense that yes. These are the, these are the plays and musicals that enjoy the highest esteem uh, of uh, of Broadway insiders, uh, and but not necessarily uh, the the only plays that can do well. And so there was a uh, Finding Neverland, which is uh, had this kind of curious and very aggressive marketing strategy that started last year on the Tonys when it wasn't even being staged. Everyone uh, wondered where was Jennifer Hudson. Right, <laughs> Jennifer Hudson last year uh, was. Part of this musical number uh, from Finding Neverland on the Tonys, although the, uh, the Finding Neverland was not at that point on stage, and and so this year it's it's you know it, it, it didn't get any big awards, it didn't really get uh, it, it got no awards, yeah. uh, nominations. I mean, so it didn't get any awards either. Um, but it's doing more than a million dollars a week at the box office. So Harvey Weinstein uh, can sit in that audience and have a big old smile on his face. Right, and so Harvey Weinstein, being the producer of the show, a Hollywood producer, and it's his first Broadway musical to produce. Yeah, and so, and, and he's done some things, some very commercially canny things about this, including you may have seen Jennifer Lopez uh, introduce well, one of the segments, and that, that's because she appears on this, not exactly the cast album. Like, there's like an album of music being sung by people who aren't in the play, but who are a lot more bankable than the play, right? I know, I know. I've, you know it's, it's kind of shocking in a way, but um, you know, he's a good businessman. And, and good marketer. And so there's a sort of, I mean, it's it's interesting. And so one of the there's so that kind of marketing plus the fact that you've got Mel, uh, Matthew Morris and Kelsey Grammer names people know attached to a story people know and are comfortable with and are not going to be put off by. They get it. They've seen you know nine other kind of repurposings of the Peter Pan story. So so you can work with that. And the other person who also was not nominated, his play was not nominated, didn't really get. Some really uh, got some actually fairly bad reviews. Was Larry David, who is entering the the Broadway marketplace, um, and and Larry David. We're going to talk with Frank in just a second about sort of the tone of last night, which I thought was, you know, for the most part, a little bit muted and, and not full of exciting surprises or incandescence. Um, but Larry David, of course, as he will, introduced uh, maybe one, you know, a, a, a squirmable moment quite oh, intentionally. So actually, we're going to play that audio right now. Let me tell you something, OK? The true measure of a man is not to be nominated and still show up. 
to read a list of names of those who are nominated. That's a big man. That's a big, big man. You say big man, others might say loser. Uh, loser. Well, you know, if by loser you're referring to a man who's greeted eight times a week by a thousand people who stand as one, applauding until their hands are raw, cheering until their voices are spent, whispering he's so much better looking in person, and laughing until their faces are contorted in an anguished mask that can best be described as a sort of Bell's palsy. People, people who were up to them would put aside the obvious anti-Semitism. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I said it. I said it. The anti-Semitism that denies a nomination to a Larry David or, or a, a Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. Then yes, then yes, I am a loser. So not the only uh, joke that uh, folded Harvey Weinstein into it. He seemed to be having a pretty good time, though. Yeah, though. But that, that, that clip was absolutely hysterical. I would have loved to have had Larry David host the show because Larry David is funny, unlike the material uh, Kristen Chenoweth and Alan Cumming uh, had, which were uh, completely unstaggering, which was completely staggeringly unfunny. When Neil Patrick uh, Harris came out at the very end of the show, I couldn't help but think uh, that he was thinking to himself, not so easy, is it, Kristen? Right. I, we have to talk a little bit about this. So Neil Patrick Harris and Hugh Jackman have both kind of established themselves as just these kind of amazingly good hosts of the of this show. Neil Patrick Harris, of course, has extended that brand into other venues and then like didn't do so well with the Oscars and maybe played around even with with one of his so-called, you know, at least what was said to be sort of a comedic failure at the Oscars. Mm-hmm. Made a little joke about himself last night. But he's really, really good at this. Yeah. Well, Alan Cumming and, and Kristen Chenoweth are gigantic talents. I mean, they're both really good. They can both do a lot of things. I mean, Alan Cumming can do everything from The Good Wife to a one-man version of Macbeth to, to, to Cabaret. But, you know, I totally agree that somehow or other this thing started out kind of weekly, and then it just kind of stayed weak in terms of what they were able to bring uh, by well, way of electricity. The, the special material that they were giving was just lame. Uh, they didn't particularly handle it that well. The running gags were bad, and I think Kristen at some point should have said, no, I am not going into that E.T. outfit. <laughs> it's not funny. It doesn't make sense. And besides, that's a movie joke. That's not particularly funny to begin with. Yeah. Oh. So it just had all these just bad choices throughout the show. Uh, and it would have been better if they just, you know, introduced everyone and get off the stage. Uh, it, you know, they were just... Um, not very good. We're talking to Frank Rizzo, theater writer for the Hartford Current and Variety. I have to say, this may mark me out as a lowbrow. That might, that was sort of the one of the few times I was also watching it with kids, which may have affected a little bit. But she did come out dressed as ET and just stood there and stood there and stood there for no reason. And finally, Alan Cumming said, "No, I said fun home." Um, and uh, yeah, uh, really big yuck. <laughs> well, it was a little, uh, little cringeworthy. Yuck. I just it was it was a cringeworthy uh, for no you know at least if they were going for a bold. Uh, uh, you know, provocative joke, I could have at least given them points. <laughs> but 
thought they were going for a bad joke that just didn't land whatsoever. But uh, she was, you know, she was a terrific performer, and so so was he. Uh, I didn't think that they had particularly uh, good chemistry together. Uh, mm-hmm. I think they're going to be going. Uh, the producers are going be going uh, on their hands and knees back to Neil Patrick or Hugh Jackman or. Uh, my choice, Larry David. <laughs> that that will you, never happen. That no, would never, ever happen. That's in my, my, my you know, fantasy yeah. Tony Award show. There's a pretty, pretty, pretty weak chance that that will ever happen. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and, you know, the other thing that surprised me a little bit is, so what does Kristen Jenoweth do better than almost anybody around these days? I mean, she really is one of the great Broadway singers. She just has this mm-hmm. just incredibly uh, electric voice. And they've typically begun the show with some big production number that, you know, that Neil Patrick Harris, who's like an okay mm-hmm. singer, uh, would do, or Hugh Jackman, who's a pretty good singer. But I mean, Kristen Chenoweth is just off the charts. And, and inst- they didn't do that. They didn't no. They didn't let her do the one thing where she could have killed. Well, that's because she was uh, hip, uh, you know, attached to the hip with Alan, who's not a great singer. He's a very good actor. He can, you know, act, sing a song, but he's nowhere in the same musical comedy um, chops that uh, Kristen does, has, or Neil Patrick Harris or Hugh Jackman. He just doesn't. So, um, but what are you going to do? You have the two co-hosts. You just can't say, oh, uh, can you step aside while I do my big number? Well, I wondered if, if also um, one of the shows that was sort of in consideration last night was Something Rotten. Something Rotten sort of mm-hmm. takes place in the era of Shakespeare. It's about these two guys who kind of want to be competitors of Shakespeare, and, 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 and but it has Shakespeare and characters in it too. But they had this sort of pre-made uh, Tony opening song in there. It's in which Nostradamus somehow shows up and predicts <laughs> that there's going to be something someday called a musical to these completely uncomprehending uh, Elizabethan people. Like, what are you talking about, this musical? And so, in a way, they might have just looked at that and said, wow, it really is. It was like it was made to open the Tonys and right. our writers get the day off, too. Exactly. That's what they should have done. Instead, it comes in a little bit later in the show. Uh, it's it's a wonderful number, beautifully done, uh, but uh, you know it's, it came a little bit too late because uh, Alan and Kristen kind of stopped the show before it even began with uh, their lame opening number. The um, uh, you said I think you tweeted that you were enjoying some of the acceptance speeches and oh very much. Um, we can talk about one or two of them. Although I, I want to begin by saying that Ruthie Ann Miles from uh, The King and I made history uh, in, in an odd way, right? <laughs> They're recycling. Yeah. She- and reading her acceptance speech, not from a, a rolled-up napkin or uh, or a pro- on the back of a program, but from her iPhone. Uh, t- yeah, so uh, I think uh, she made history twice. Uh, not right. to mention she's uh, probably the first Asian uh, actor to win an award in quite some time. Right. So, yeah, she went paperless and uh, read, read all, <laughs> all of her thank you stuff. Because there really is – I can't remember who it was, but there was some person who – last night, some actress or, or other esteemed person who seemed to be trying to dig a post-it out of, like, the folds of her dress somewhere. I'm thinking – Yeah. Man, I, I was like, <laughs> just don't do not do that. That doesn't look good. I know. I, it was it Kelly? I think it was Kelly and, O'Hara who uh, – she started off – whoever it was, it started out so well. 
well, and then suddenly her, her hands, you know, sort of went into her dress and put out little tiny pieces of piece of paper with all, with all the obligatory uh, thank yous. But in, in Kelly's defense, it was a lovely speech, and she had the best exit uh, of, of receiving an award that I've ever seen, that wonderful dance jig that she did as she went off the stage. She, well, you know, uh, Ruthie and Miles may have sort of judged the moment correctly by going paperless, and I, I thought um, Kelly O'Hara may have judged the moment correctly by thinking, I can be a gif or jif, depending on how we are. How did we decide we're going to pronounce the oh, I, I never figured that out. No, I was just looking at Wolfie because we keep having arguments about it. But she, she, it was almost as if she knew, mm. I can go viral, this is going to be perfect. I can be a vine, I can be a gif, I can, you know. Uh, and, and and so she, she sort of got that moment right. Was there another uh, acceptance speech in particular? Well, we should say one of the most moving ones in the way that things go these days was Janine Tesori and Lisa Kron uh, for Fun Home, which wasn't shown as part and, of the telecast. And actually, I would say uh, some of the best uh, acceptance features were not shown. You, of course, people can see them on YouTube and and other theater sites. But uh, actually, the, the best one was uh, Janine Tesori for, for Fun Home and Lisa Crone, who wrote the book for Fun Home. And they were so moving and so articulate. And uh, I mean, it's really a tragedy that all of America couldn't hear uh, that acceptance speech in, in prime time because it was it was terrific. And yesterday at the Long Wharf, we were talking about how hard it is for women, and Crone at the end said it's statistically 10% better than it used to be for women on Broadway. It's yeah. unacceptably low, but it seems that perhaps we're making some progress. Um, let me ask you this, Frank. I mean, uh, of uh, you see a lot of theater. You're going to see most of these plays, or you've already seen most of these plays anyway. Do you, Did you feel as though at the end of last night, uh, there was something you had to go rush and see. Um, well, I've seen most of these. Uh, I was most concerned on On the Town because it's a terrific show. It really is. It's not as, as fantastic as uh, American in Paris, which really uh, is, is, is sublime uh, beyond words. But it's a terrific, very good show. And I, that for me, that's the big question on how that wonderful show is going to do now that it really didn't uh, take home any awards. But it had a wonderful uh, segment that... Um, uh, that that was shown. Um, so um, a lot of the uh, the plays are, are no longer uh, on board, um, but I think Fun Home is is the one uh, is the one to see or to see again, because uh, I, I think uh, a lot of people who might have pushed that to the side will now uh, make it a point. To, to check out. Yeah, I, I like the on the town guy. He sort of cruised through the audience at the that beginning and, and uh, pulled up uh, Cheetah Rivera for a quick spin, and I think, yeah. think Ruth Wilson after that. Um, so, well, listen, Frank Rizzo, it's so great to talk to you, and uh, you are the guy. You are, you are the guy. <laughs> you're the guy. Who, certainly, you watch the Tonys as well as any human being could it's watch the Tonys. It's a lot of fun. So I'll see you at the theater, Colin. Yeah, I'll probably see you at Audra McDonald tonight, actually. Tonight, but, yeah. You uh, bet. All right. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Bye-bye. So that's the Tonys. We're going to switch gears now and uh, come back with a very different segment uh, about a complicated case in a Connecticut court that will be materially affected by a very highly publicized Supreme Court decision from last week, a decision about threatening online.
As the trial of a man accused of threatening uh, um, a Connecticut judge is winding down, heading towards closing arguments, uh, there's been a sudden continuance in the trial because of a highly publicized U.S. Supreme Court decision that was issued last week, the so-called Elonis case, which is also about threatening, also about threatening using the Internet. This is the uh, Facebook case uh, in which a man who was upset with his wife and his co-workers was uh, writing some pretty scary stuff about them on Facebook. The Supreme Court ultimately decided that his state of mind uh, in, in writing these things was more important, the more decisive factor than how it affected the people who subsequently read these things. So joining us right now is Rachel Baird. She's the eternal attorney representing uh, Edward Topier, whose case uh, may in fact be influenced by this decision. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Colin. Thank you for having me. So uh, first of all, quickly tell us about uh, uh, this case and your client. Uh, This case started a trial in April of 2015. We had approximately 11 days of evidence. It was a trial before a judge, not a jury. And so at the end of evidence, the judge gave both sides opportunity to brief the issue, and we were going to hold closing arguments on June 2nd. And on June 1st, the Alonis decision issued and I filed a motion for continuance to determine the impact of aloneness on the case. The judge granted uh, my motion, and now the argument is set down for June 23rd for both sides to weigh in on the impact of aloneness and any other issues that they want to bring forward, obviously. So let me try to set this up a little, and you can, uh, you can correct me when I get things wrong, which I inevitably will, but uh, so my understanding of this is that this was uh, an ongoing dispute uh, in which Ted Topier was uh, unhappy with his ex-wife and also unhappy with the functioning of the court system. Like a lot of people these days, he's kind of uh, revved up uh, about guardians, guardians ad litem and other aspects of family court. We've seen this kind of boiling over uh, in some other contexts over the last year or two. He was sending an email, I think, to six people uh, involved in the family court reform movement. So the email was not to Judge Elizabeth Pizzuto, but it did describe how upset he was with Elizabeth Pizzuto and then went on to describe things uh, like uh, where she lives, what kind of windows there are there, uh, what would basically happen if you shot at one of those windows. And at the end, he says, or in this email, it says, they can steal my kids from my cold, dead, bleeding, cordite-filled fists uh, as my 60-round mag falls to the floor uh, and I'm dying. I change out to the next 30-round. So these, this is kind of tough language. I don't know whether you've stipulated yet to the idea that, that, that he sent that email. We, we have not. There, there are obviously two components of this case, and one of them is we're holding the state to its burden of proof that it actually proves that Mr. Topier sent the email. And then our position is that even if a court could find that there's uh, beyond reasonable doubt that he did, that the words in the email do not constitute uh, a true threat, and that as an ancillary and interesting issue in this case, uh, there's no proof of any intention that it actually uh, reach uh, Judge Pizzuto, uh, and that it was an email intended for uh, what we've described in the case is a loose-knit uh, group of individuals who support family court reform in Connecticut and on occasion uh, talk about it in a context that they all understand to be simply venting. Um, my recollection uh, is that when uh, Ted Topia was uh, arrested, he was arrested with considerable force, or at least there was uh, a huge uh, police presence showing up uh, at his house. 
Well, interestingly enough, the police did show up on August 29th at his house with what's called a risk warrant, which is a civil warrant uh, that authorizes the police to seize guns and ammunition in the state of Connecticut. They also arrived with an arrest warrant. Uh, they did not arrive uh, with any search warrant for any computer devices or any computer equipment, um, and they never did seize any such items from Mr. Topier's house. Uh, so our position, one of our positions in this case, is that it was always more about uh, his possession of firearms than whatever happened with computers or didn't happen with computers. How... Um... How big a difference do you think the Supreme Court decision makes? I mean, obviously, we live in, in in a new era where, you know, if I write something on the Internet, if I send out a, an email blast to six people, uh, it, it's difficult for me to know or anticipate who is going to wind up reading it. Same with the loneliness in his Facebook posts. You know, there's only so much control you can exercise o- over this. And so I, I think we were sort of hearing the argument made uh, that, well, whether whether he intended this to get to Judge Bazzuto or not, or whether Alonis intended for his ex-wife to see this uh, or, or not, um, people wind up seeing these things. They circulate more freely in this environment than, say, a paper letter would have 30 years ago. So, um, so, so you were, But you were already making this argument prior to the Alonis decision that you still can't say that he had any intention of threatening Elizabeth Bazzuto. We were already making the argument. The state um, in the Tolpier case charged that he acted with a reckless intent. Um, They did not charge intentional conduct, but reckless conduct. And specifically in Alonis, uh, the majority, the seven-member majority of the court, left the issue of recklessness open for another day. Um, And we argued to Judge Gold last week that this Topier case in Connecticut, in fact, presents that opportunity of another day to decide whether recklessness is enough of a mental state to overcome um, a First Amendment guarantee of the right to express oneself. And in the Topier case, there's an added component of we're adding, we're arguing this is, in fact, political speech. This is about a matter of public importance. It's not just about, as Nalone is posting things about um, what I understand was, uh, you know, his ex-wife, uh, an FBI agent, and, and other individuals where uh, it's hard to argue that it's, in fact, political speech. And so we looked at the jury instruction that the district court in Alonis used, and we're arguing it's very similar to the jury instruction that would, in fact, be used under recklessness in Connecticut. And so, therefore, even though the Supreme Court did not decide the issue of recklessness, if you look at the jury instruction they rejected and compare it to the Connecticut jury instruction, then then our argument is that, in fact, recklessness is not enough, and you have to hold people to a higher mental state if you're going to chill their First Amendment expression especially if that First Amendment expression involves political speech. Um, you know, I'm obviously not a lawyer, but just for uh, just to help you keep your argumentation skills sharp in this particular case, let me just sort of offer a counter-argument. Um, uh, you know, I don't know the Alonis case really well, but my recollection was that he sort of almost kind of tagged many of the things that he posted by sort of saying that he was expressing his First Amendment right, rights or sort of invoking that notion. One of the things he links to uh, is a, a comedy video about the by the whitest kids in the room 
them about about this whole sort of question whether you can get arrested for for threatening somebody, threatening the president. He, then he writes about threatening his wife. But it, it seemed as though running through this was a little bit of a ticker that was going kind of alone as being a little bit aware of the fact that this this he might have to sort of defend his actions on First Amendment grounds. And he kind of expressed that uh, a few times, whereas looking at, at Mr. Topier's uh, email, it, it, it Obviously, he's interested in a political question, as you say, and the political question is family court reform. But the place he's in trouble is doesn't seem political at all. It seems as though he's really mad at this judge and he's talking about, you know, what kind of house she has and where what her windows are like and what it would be like to shoot at that house and, and, and you know, and how prepared he is to keep firing uh, under any circumstances. To me... So are you sort of arguing an NBA continuation rule that since he was engaged in political speech about family court reform at the beginning, this counts as as political speech, too? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, and, and I, I, I would certainly argue differently that that in aloneness, he he wasn't engaged in uh, that, that he was not engaged in political speech. And I know what you're referring to, that he used, uh, you know, a lot of references almost as if he were teasing the argument of the First Amendment, which, which almost makes it, in our viewpoint, less of a First Amendment issue. I mean, Mr. Tolpier was, if, if, the, if the state is to be believed and they present evidence that he, in fact, sent the email, then Mr. Tolpier was, in fact, um, arguing a, a political issue. Um, he was also engaged in First Amendment expression, um, one of the things that came out at the court trial, similar to Alonis and in, in him using certain references that, that are commonly known, I mean, the, the, the reference about the, the mag is, is a direct reference to, to what Charlton Heston said in, in, front, you know, in front of many people many times, is his famous, his famous saying. And so that, that, in effect, it falls, you know, under a similar category of, of what Alonis did. But more importantly, in Mr. Tolpier's case, I mean, he sent it to a, a loose-knit or community of individuals whom he understood to share his point of view. And Justice Roberts, at oral argument in Alonis on December 1st of 2014, basically said the same thing. If you go into an Internet chat room full of teenagers uh, they're going to be speaking in, in a certain way. And if you take the, what they say out of the context and put it in another context, then it's very likely a lot of people are going to be very alarmed um, about this. And so it all has to do with the context in, in which it's spoken. And once we start taking things that people say, you know, in the privacy of their homes or in the privacy of their emails, or I guess it remains to be seen uh, how it's interpreted, how private, you know, Facebook uh, pages are, uh, whether they're limited to certain people or whether they're more open to others. Uh, it's going to eventually chill speech among people who understand what they're saying to each other, but they're concerned that if it's overheard or transmitted to somebody else and it's interpreted in a much different way, they could end up being arrested. So the context has to be looked at. And that's what we argued uh, repeatedly in the case that the context of the email had to be looked at as to how the six recipients um, had been involved in family court and had experienced similar frustrations among other people. 
Although one of the six recipients was alarmed enough and troubled enough. I think she said that she also she felt his pain on the one hand and understood that from her point of view, a person who was feeling a, a lot of pain over the way the system was working against him might write such a thing. But she also was alarmed enough to do something about it. So, I mean, in the context of that group of six anyway, there was at least one person who said, wow, I don't think this should necessarily stay in this group of six. Well, let me just clarify that. She received the email on August 23rd, and all this is based on the evidence And she made numerous phone calls to other people who did not share the alarm, did not pass it on. And then Mr. Topier, on the next Wednesday, August 27th, went to a Cromwell school to videotape his children being taken from the school forcibly by the Cromwell Police Department. And when this individual who ultimately reported the email saw that video, she became concerned that if Mr. Tolpier saw the video, then he would become even more upset, and that's what led her to actually not report the email to the police, but to report it to an attorney who then spoke to her bosses about it, who then called the clerk of the court, who then referred her to two other people, and she got voicemail who then she ultimately reached a judicial marshal, who then is the one who ultimately contacted the police. So the facts of the case are, are a little more convoluted than than um, than somebody, somebody simply becoming concerned and calling calling the police. Yeah, that's that is quite a chain of information yes, of information custody. Well, I mean, Rachel Baird, you're an advocate, you're an attorney, you're doing the best job you can uh, for your client. It's not your job at this point to think about broader ramifications or what this means for society and stuff. But you know, even so, given that, I'm going to ask you a question like that anyway. Does it does it alarm you? at all in any way. I mean, I think some people, they they listen to this case, they listen to the aloneness case, and they think, wow, you know, it really makes other people kind of vulnerable to threats as long as the threats are couched a certain way or or menacing language or or intimidating language if it's couched a certain way. And and if if the maker of the threats couches his behavior and is careful uh, to, to, to maybe be aware of this case law and does it exactly the right way, we could be living in a society where just this, that kind of intimidation goes flying around all the time uh, and, and has a different kind of chilling effect, uh, the chilling effect of making people very, very afraid of other people. And as I say, I know it's not your job to worry about that. Is there any part of you that, that thinks somewhere out there there is a line that needs to get drawn? Well, we're always going to have laws that prohibit threatening. It's just a matter of what you have to show uh, that constitutes a true threat. And what the Supreme Court indicated in aloneness is negligence isn't enough. We're arguing that recklessness isn't enough because that will uh, chill the First Amendment beyond, beyond, uh, beyond what it's intended to be. I mean, certainly intentionally threatening somebody with an intention to uh, place them in fear is something that's illegal, prohibited, and that's not going to and that's not going to change soon. But putting a chilling effect on the First Amendment that makes people afraid to speak out to people that they understand um, they can talk to because they are frustrated. I think it's far more dangerous to prohibit people from venting their frustrations to people that they believe understand because just because you prohibit somebody from saying something doesn't mean that they're not going to do it. And don't we want people to have the ability to vent their frustrations and talk to other people 
and have people understand and perhaps commiserate and have things dealt with that way better than uh, better than prohibiting people from speaking out at all. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely want that, although if this were a friend of mine, I would advise him against using the kind of language and imagery that this guy used. So, Rachel Beard, I know you have to go. I know your time is limited. Um, so, so set us up for the rest of this. So you're, you'll be back in court on June 23rd arguing this point? We will, and we're going through the transcripts now, uh, the 11 days of testimony. We're reviewing uh, case law that's similar to this, and we hope, uh, well, we certainly hope to present a compelling argument on June 23rd why legally uh, the case should not go forward and why factually it should be sound in Mr. Tolfier's favor. All right. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We'll be back for a final segment. It'll be about Saturday's Belmont Stakes. One of the horses, not the one who made history, but one of the horses who ran pretty well was owned at least partly by two men from North Haven. We'll talk to one of them after this. Combine the Tonys and a Belmont and have the actors run around a track to get their statuettes. Today's show was produced by Tucker Ives and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Anna Geismar, Pally St. Germain, and Allison Ehrenreich. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Tommy Toon. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff's huge Bob Fosse dance number, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, a logo cast, which is a word I just made up for a show about people who make up new words. And now, back to Colin. The 37-year wait is over. American Pharaoh is finally the one. American Pharaoh has won the Triple Crown. So that's what you heard uh, on Saturday. And, of course, the big news of the day, indisputably, was that American Pharaoh, for the first time in 37 years, was a Triple Crown winner. It's been a long wait. I think President Carter was president last time there was a Triple Crown winner. But as the race unfolded, there were those of us who were cheering for other horses. Partly because some of us had bet a lot of exactas that didn't involve American Pharaoh, and part of us because everybody loves an underdog. So one of the underdogs or underhorses was a horse known as Keen Ice. We're going to talk to John Buckley, actually John Buckley of North Haven, uh, one of the owners of Keen Ice. First of all, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, Colin. And speaking of show, congratulations. <laughs> Keen Ice uh, finished third. So first of all, how, how did you come to be a racehorse owner? I assume you are a petrochemical magnate multi-billionaire. Not quite. Maybe someday uh, that will come my way, but that hasn't yet. I got involved uh, almost 30 years ago, I guess. It was uh, my dad had decided that uh, once he put all his kids through school uh, that he would get involved in uh, owning some racehorses. He ended up buying some or claiming some horses up at Suffolk Downs in Boston. I watched him. He taught me the game. And a few years later, I was involved in the business myself. So it's almost been uh, almost 30 years now that I've been involved in uh, horse ownership. And to get down there for the Belmont and be a part of history uh, doesn't get any better than that. It does get slightly better. It gets better (laughs) when your horse finishes first. But I I would imagine this was kind of a cool thing on a number of levels. As you say, this was history. And it's not like your horse finished totally out of the money, too. So there's sort of two good things happen, right? Absolutely. To be a part of uh, American Pharaoh's Day and what he did is so good for racing. A special day down there. Uh, If you could have felt the energy down there, it was amazing. But then to have a participant and a horse that shows up that 
runs about as well as he can run right now in his developmental pattern, uh, we were thrilled. Tell us about Keenice. Well, what can you uh, give us a little sense of who this horse is? Keenice is a horse that I got involved in about six, seven months ago. Uh, there's a fellow by the name of uh, Jerry Crawford who uh, runs a partnership by the name of uh, Donegal Stable, uh, does a tremendous job. Uh, he had this colt that uh, I had noticed uh, running the Remsen, which is a race that's run in November at Aqueduct. Uh, he was a horse that made up some ground that day, and I became interested in him at that time, started having conversations with Jerry, who was the founder and the principal of the uh, of the partnership, and uh, became involved in, in, in Keen Ice. He's a big, strong, strapping colt. He's bred to run all day long. He looks the part. He's thick, a big shoulder, and um, it was a it was a thrill to be a part of it. And it was you weren't just a part of this, right? Keenice ran uh, in the Derby as well. Yeah, we were down there for the Derby as well. Uh, he ran seventh, uh, what we thought was a fast closing seventh in the Kentucky Derby, uh, and then uh, we took the Preakness off and came back to to take another shot at American Pharaoh in the Belmont. Is this, you said you've been in the horse game a little bit for many, many years now. Is this the first time you've had a horse run those two races? This is the first time I've ever participated on this level of the business. Uh, I've owned horses with uh, two other partners, uh, a fellow in, in another guy in North Haven by the name of Ralph Durante and I have owned horses for the last 17 or 18 years together. We played mostly at the claiming allowance and then occasional stakes horse race. Uh, we had never have a, had a horse involved in the Triple Crown. Uh, we got involved with uh, Jerry Crawford and Donegal because we thought we'd have a chance to do that with uh, his partnerships. And uh, this was our first time, our first uh, trip to Kentucky, our first trip to the Belmont Stakes to actually be a part of it. I would assume getting a taste of that would be pretty seductive. You're absolutely right. It's hard to play anything at the highest level and not enjoy being part of it. It's a tremendous ride. Were you surprised to hear that American Pharaoh's basically going to run out the rest of the year, um, you know, run in other venues? Uh, did that surprise you? It did not surprise me because uh, Zayat, uh, Ahmed Zayat, uh, is a true sportsman. He loves the game. Really, the the intrigue here is when you've got something special like that is to share it with the public, uh, particularly the racing public, and let them be a part of that horse. Uh, I don't think that for him it's all about the money. It's about the sportsman piece of it, and that's great for the game. So what kind of uh, year is uh, Keen Ice going to have from here on in? People who are listening to this here in Connecticut might want to see uh, Keen Ice run at Saratoga Springs or someplace close by. Is there any chance of that? Yeah, you know, I was um, I was listening to Jerry Crawford, the, the managing partner, speak after the race, and I think that uh, it's undecided at this point in time. I think that there may be some thought that they want to try this colt on the grass at some point in time, but I think everything's still on the table when you've been through this uh, grueling mile and a half. I think they've got to kind of let them down a little bit, let them return to being a horse, and then put together a plan depending upon where he's at and what he wants. There's... In my mind, uh, Donegal races horses. They'll have horses at Saratoga. It would not surprise me if he if he ran there. It likewise wouldn't surprise me if they sent him to somewhere like Arlington Park and ran on the grass. As of last Friday, there were a lot of people saying, well, it's just not ever going to happen again for a whole bunch of different reasons. Everybody had this kind of rationale about why there just isn't going to be a Triple Crown winner. And, of course, and then you had the sort of the California Chrome people from last year saying, well, you know, also it's, you know, some people rest their horses and it's not fair and all this kind of stuff. And so that's all kind of out the window now. And you sort of wonder, you know, right after Roger Bannister broke the four-minute uh, mile mark, a lot of people broke the four-minute mile mark. Does it make you think maybe 
within two, three, four, five years we might see this happen again, or does it not work that way? I don't think it works that way. I don't think it works that way anymore because we breed horses differently. Uh, Horses are not bred uh, to do what uh, these horses are doing. They're bred to sprint more than they are to go a distance or ground, and they're not trained anymore to run uh, three races in five weeks. Uh, It's just not the way that they go at the business any longer. And when a horse does this in the current environment, which is much different than it was 50 years ago, it is a tremendous feat. You really have to have a horse that I think is just that much better than the rest. Now, how old is Key Nice now? I'm sorry that I don't know that. He's a three-year-old, and uh, all of the horses that run in the series, yeah. uh, the Triple Crown, are all three-year-olds, and he is, of course, a three-year-old. What's next for you? I mean, do you have another horse that's coming up through the ranks right now, or does that, is that a decision you make later? One of the great things about our involvement with Donegal is that uh, we're involved in a group of two-year-olds. Uh, we have um, five or six two-year-olds that we're involved in uh, for next year, and hope springs eternal, obviously. <laughs> Keen Ice will continue to do what he does, and I think the hope with all of these horses is that they continue to get better because some athletes peak as junior in high schools and some don't figure it out until they're 21. So you're hoping that with all of them they continue to improve. But as far as this is concerned, we're involved in a group of two-year-olds that will be uh, going to the track probably within the next uh, month or so. Uh, we hope to see a couple of those up at Saratoga make their debut, which is a special event. Uh, and then hopefully uh, we've got something to talk about next year as well when uh, it's derby time. But uh, that's what we're looking at. Well, John Buckley, congratulations. I couldn't be happier, happier for you unless... I hadn't lost $42 betting against American <laughs> Farrah. That's great. Thank uh, you so much. I appreciate it. This is great for racing, and, and thank you for covering it. And uh, I hope people come out and enjoy this sport as much as I do. That's our show for today. Thanks to everybody who helped make it possible. Tomorrow, we'll do, we're doing a show about new words and people who make up new words. So if you've ever wondered what Nipster or Charmelade are, or if you'd prefer not to have ever known, either way, join us here at the same time. One more time out on the track, saddle the wind and get up on his back and let him roll, let him roll. Well, let me see the big horse run, let him roll. I don't understand how all these horses put up with it. I mean, their bosses are riding them all day. Who do they think they are? I mean, get off your high horse. Am I right?